0: literally launched himself, oh, I'm a bit old for that now, <laughs> into a fan and, and knocked him down. And Cantonar had created a sensation. In the press conference that followed, the journalists gathered, hungry to, to ask questions. TV cameras waited to see what Cantonar would say. And he took a drink of water and said slowly, when the seagulls follow the trawler, It's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. Thank you very much. And he got up and left. Now, only a Frenchman would get away with something like that. Nobody had a clue what he was talking about. The seagulls following the trawler, waiting for sardines. But then, if you stop and think, you can figure out what he was saying, can't you? He was talking about the journalists. It all depends on how you listen. Now, that's a bit like Mark chapter 4, which Liz just read for us. Jesus has, by this time, already in the first few pages of Mark's gospel, achieved extraordinary prominence and public reputation. He's been announced by John the Baptist. He's been teaching and preaching so that news has spread, not just through his own country, but also to those around internationally. He has been healing people who no one could heal. He's been casting out spirits. He's been offending the establishment. He's been attracting great crowds. And with this meteoric rise to fame, you can imagine people are hanging on his every word and asking, what's next? They're asking, is the revolution about to be televised? So there are great expectations. And there in verse 1, if you look at your Bible, Jesus again began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So imagine the scene. There's so many people. He gets in a boat to come out, and across the water there's a kind of natural amplification system. So his voice is as clear as a bell, even to thousands. What is he going to say? He starts to tell stories. A certain kind of story called a parable and they're quite puzzling. And the point of them is you have to listen carefully to unlock the meaning. It says that he taught them many things by parables, puzzling parables, but there's one parable in particular that the, the Mark wants to draw our attention to. And we have this whole 20 verses is on this one parable and it's into its interpretation because it's the parable about parables. And Matthew records it and Luke records it. This is the one that we've really got to get our heads around. But it looks, doesn't it, like nobody gets it. Have a look at verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. They're asking for, for more clarity, for more information. It looks like no one's got it. So you have to ask, don't you, why would Jesus speak in such a way? I mean, surely public communicators want to be as clear as possible. Why tell stories that aren't obvious? That don't immediately land why would he do that and the answer is that jesus here speaks as a prophet this is what the prophets do he speaks as a prophet and he shows us how we listen to him is vital and he also extends us an invitation and a warning he speaks as a prophet he shows us how we listen to him is vital And he gives us an invitation and a warning. And Jesus does this with the well-known story of a sower and four different kinds of soil. You've already heard Gareth talk about it. You've heard Liz read the story. It's probably well-known to many of you. Three unproductive soils and one very, very fruitful, often known as the parable of the sower. There it is at the top of your Bible uh, passage there. Those headings have been inserted by the translators to help us. Uh, But actually, the focus is really on the soils, it could be called the parable of the soils. And fortunately for us, Mark gives us not only the parable, but also Jesus' own interpretation. And some of you have read this many times, I know that, and I have too. But let me tell you, there are things about this passage that I have never understood until yesterday. And then I did, and it blew my hair back. As you can see, I'm now receding. It's stunning. The famous words of the Puritan John Robinson, I am very confident the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. Amen? Yeah. He's got much more light to break out if we come back to his word again and again. I've got three points. The soils, the sower, and the shock tactic. The soils, the sower, and the shock tactic. Firstly, the soils. Having told the story about the farmer going to sow the seed and the three different kinds of seed, and some goes along the path and some goes along uh, falls into rocky ground and some falls in a thorny patch and some falls in good soil uh, and the disciples come and they say to Jesus can you just tell us a bit more about that please you know can we have a follow up seminar q and a <laughs> and in verse 10 when they're alone they ask him for more information this group is described as the 12 remember they were the 12 that Jesus has appointed as leaders of a new Israel a new community those 12 and others other followers they come they want to learn And he reveals further depths to them. And he says to them, um, the farmer sows the word, verse 14. The farmer sows the word. So he reveals that this, this story is about the word of God, God's word. And that word goes into different kinds of soil. And it has a very different response. Firstly, there's the hard path, the hard path. Imagine a a field in the countryside with a well-worn path running through it. People have been walking up and down this path and riding their mountain bikes and whatever they do for years. And everywhere around the ground is soft, but this path is trodden down and it's hard. And some seeds, as the farmer is sowing, some seeds fall on the hard ground. But you know what happens? They, They don't go in, they just bounce off. And the birds, who are very clever... Quickly see that and they eat the seed. Now, Jesus is giving us a picture here of a person who does hear the word of God, verse 15. They, they do hear the word, but, and the word is sown. But as soon as they hear it, this is kind of spooky actually, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Rather striking. Satan comes. It's basically a warning. If you hear God's word, don't put it off. Don't wait a moment. It could be forgotten, and the point is to give you urgency because there is an evil personality, an evil set of forces in our world who want to take that word right away from you. The second picture is that of the rocky ground. This, is the, this seed actually makes a bit more of a purchase. Um, it says that uh, it, it fell on rocky places, and, and there's Apparently, in in the country where Jesus was preaching, there's plenty of places where the soil looks good, but underneath, not far down, there's actually rock. And so when the soil goes in, that soil is actually quite warm, because it's on top of rocks. And so the the seed goes in, and it hits the warm soil, and it quickly seems to grow, and you think, this is great, we've got a harvest coming, but actually it hasn't gone deep, and there's rock down there, and so the plants lack moisture, and they quickly die, and Jesus explains again, this is like the person who hears the word and they immediately respond with joy. They love it. And we're all so excited, we're so grateful that this person's come and they're getting their arms around it and they love to hear God's word. But it says, verse, verse 17, they last only a short time. Their joy is temporary. Why? Because, Jesus says, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they give up immediately. They're just gone. They vanish. They quickly fall away. And that is a a very sobering picture for us, isn't it? If you've been around this church or any church for any amount of time, you will have seen that. And we're so happy when someone responds joyfully to the word. But sadly, some are temporary. When the hot sun of difficulty starts to beat down on them, they wither. They're gone. The test of true faith is that it grows and endures in the face of difficulty. Then there's the third kind of soil, the thorny patch, verses 18 to 19. And anyone who's done any kind of gardening, however basic, will know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And I know I'm on, I'm on um, I've got to tread on careful ground here, sorry, that's not an intentional pun because there's so many gardeners in this church so i'm not going to say anything foolish but when we came to chesington last summer bob robinson god bless him had arranged an amazing group of people from this church who came and got the house ready and they they did the garden and we, we walked in and it, it, it was just like something out of homes and gardens and we looked at it and i knew from that point on it would never look that good again It was like the fall, you know, from then on, everything went downhill, thorns and thistles grew. Now, I don't want any of those people to come back, to be honest with you, because it would almost be an insult to see what's happened to the garden, as you think you've got a nice bed of soil with beautiful plants in it, and you've dug it over, and there's the good black soil, but somehow, I don't know how they do it, there's always some weeds in there, aren't there? There's always something in there that's growing up much more successfully than the plant you wanted to grow. And there it is, it takes over again. They're still lurking there. And sure enough, they grow again, often stronger than the good plants. And apparently weeds in the area of Galilee, according to the scholars, could grow up to six feet tall and have a major root system. That's quite a weed, isn't it? It's quite a thorn. These thorns were so powerful, they could choke out a good crop. And Jesus Interestingly, identifies two possible sources of thorns in your life and my life. Have a look back at chapter 4. Verse 18. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. So they, they do hear. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So the first possible source of thorns in our lives is cares and anxieties about our life. Now that's not a sin, is it? Really? To care about your life and what's going on with the people around you. It's not a sinful thing. But the effect of those cares, if they grow too big, can be deadly. If you care so much about your job and your career, You care so much about your grades and your studies. You care so much about your finances and your money. You care so much about your house, your spouse, your children. All cares of life which get more and more the older you get. Those things can actually dominate your horizon so much that you cannot in the end hear God's word. They choke out the spiritual life. My father, who was in pastoral ministry for for nearly 50 years, he often would say he'd seen many, many people over the decades who, who heard the word as a young person, young adult, and went into their 20s fully committed and passionate about living for Jesus, and then the cares of life came in, and gradually, bit by bit by bit, they were choked out. And only then in their 50s or 60s did they come back to the Lord and say, I, I've, I've lost all those years. And it was actually good things that took them away. Now the second source of thorns in our lives Jesus points at is, is the deceitfulness of money. And you might think, well I don't have much wealth, this doesn't apply to me. Hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I know we've got the most expensive council attacks in London. My days! What happened there? The deceitfulness of riches. Now, riches, again, in themselves, are not bad. The Bible isn't anti-money. Christianity isn't against the material world. Some of the heroes of faith in the Bible were actually very rich people. The point is, what you do with your money and what your money does with you. You see, money is very dangerous. It's not a neutral thing. It's like kryptonite. You hold it long enough, it can do things to you. Jesus speaks about the deceitfulness of wealth. Money tells lies. Your money will lie to you and make you think you're more important than you are. Your money will lie to you and think you're more secure than you are. Whereas in reality, money doesn't make you secure from any of the things that will really hurt you. Money can't take away cancer. Money can't take away heartbreak. Money can't take away failure, disappointment, betrayal, depression. Money really is lying to you. But it makes you think that you're safe and secure. It makes you think you're someone. Money is so dangerous, it seduces us, and that too is a choking thorn. And Jesus warns us about the cares of life, which are legitimate, and about the deceitfulness of money, and says, those things can grow up alongside your spiritual life and choke it. Now, here's the thing. You notice these three soils, there's like a progression so far. The first one, the seed didn't even go in. The second one, it did go in, and it grew a bit, but then it died. And the third one, it's grown quite a lot. But it's finally been choked. And then we get to the fourth soil. Thank God. The main stress of the parable is this. It is good soil. It is fertile and productive. Jesus says in verse 20, Other people, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, they accept it, they produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Now that is something, isn't it? Gareth had... 2,000 seeds in his pocket. Is that right? Did he really have 2,000 seeds? Have you actually got them though? He has got <laughs> I thought he was making it up. I thought he was talking about atoms, by the way. <laughs> Carrot seeds. That's fantastic. There's 2,000 in there. That's so small. Thank you, brother. You just helped the servant as well. 2,000 seeds. So small. And yet when it comes up, you know how many carrots you can get out of that? Woo! you are eating carrots for the rest of your life. You will be orange. You can also see in the dark. So fertile. In the Bible, a hundredfold is a a bountiful harvest. Genesis 26, 20. And Jesus explains this is the person who hears and accepts the word, and they bear fruit in their life, and they bear a crop. This person hears the word and reflects on it deeply and consistently. She lets it go deep down into her heart and influence her whole life. She takes the time to study it and to discuss it with others and to think about it. She lets the word affect her decisions, priorities, the direction of her life. She not only hears, but obeys. Now, interesting point here for any language nerds present is that in the Hebrew language, the word that's translated listen or hear can also be translated obey. Reminds me of some of the times I've heard my wife saying to the children over the last 20 years, you are not listening. Well, they are. They heard the words, but my word, they're not obeying. And of course, we all love to give our children choices and discussion and so on. But when it comes to road safety, it's not a dialogue, is there? Don't cross the road now. Don't cross now. You are not listening. Sometimes you've got to obey. And so as a result, this person, Jesus says, bears fruit that's far beyond what went in, those little seeds. The word looks so weak, doesn't it? This book, it looks so irrelevant. And yet it changes and transforms people again and again and again in all different cultures all around the world, all different times. They bear fruit. And if you look around this room, maybe take a moment to do that. If you look around this room, you can see mature Christians who have walked with Jesus faithfully over many, many years, and I can see them. Some of them were my youth leaders 40 years ago. They must have come out of the ark. (laughs) They've walked faithfully with Jesus over many, many years, and so you can see, you can actually see it at King's Church, what this harvest looks like. It's a harvest of character. Jesus talks, uh, sorry, not Jesus, the Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you when you become a Christian, new birth. You pair this fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are ripening in a believer's life as the years go by. And the Bible does not promise you perfection overnight, but transformation over a lifetime. That is the, the harvest that is born, a growing love for God and for other people, a desire to serve Jesus Christ and put him first, manifested in, in a fruitful place in kingdom activities wherever God places you, a desire to share his word with others. Now, so far, so good. I don't think I've said anything surprising yet. We've already remembered things and maybe learned things that are useful to know and helpful. And many sermons on this passage stop there. But actually, remember, I had three points. The first one is the longest, by the way. The soils, the sower, and the shop tactic. Because we need to ask, I think, to go a bit deeper what Jesus is really teaching us. Who is the sower? Who is the sower of the seed? Who is this farmer? Now, not much information is given us about him. In the telling of the parable, he's an anonymous. Farmer, a typical farmer in the ancient Near East. And when Jesus reveals the the interpretation to his followers, he says this farmer is sowing the word. He's sowing God's word. So who is he? Now because most of us are modern, western individualists, the tendency is for us probably to think that we're the ones sowing the word. Perhaps we think about people whose job it is to teach the Bible. They're they're the farmer. They're sowing the word. Or indeed, any of us who share God's word with people. And that's an awful lot of people in this church, isn't it? Huge number of people. If you think about those who share the word with disabled people. Those who share the word by leading a life group, discussion. By those who lead women's Bible studies. There's a man here who's taken a group of young men and he's sharing the word with them. Those who teach children in many different ministries and young people, all these different ministries, there are lots and lots of ways that the word is being sown at King's Church. Praise God for that. And surely there is an application to us in our sowing of the word here, isn't there? Because we've seen all these kinds of soil, haven't we? In your experience, you will have seen all of them. And we need to remember that there will always be unproductive soil. And it can look hopeless, but the harvest is coming, and it will be bountiful. But is that who Jesus is primarily talking about here? When we think about Jesus' original audience, the people who were there with him, they were not modern Western individualists. These were people who were steeped in the Bible. I want to imagine that you only have one media source. You only have one book. And this book, you learn about every time you go to a synagogue, and you t- your family talk about it a lot, and it's the book that defines your culture. Pe- these people knew the Bible, like right, the back of their hands. Some of them probably knew all of it by heart, because they were from an oral culture they could remember. They are going to think about the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. That's the background, the big background, okay? And the most likely background in the Old Testament is that the sower is God. God is the farmer sowing the seed, and he is sowing people. That's the image in the Old Testament. I'll just prove it to you with a few quotes from the prophets. Don't look them up. It's, I'm going to go through these fast, but I'm going to make the point. Isaiah 37, the remnant of Judah will take root downward and bear fruit upward. That's people. Isaiah 27:6. Jacob will take root and fill the earth With fruit. Isaiah 43, verse 5, God says, I will bring your seed from the east. Isaiah 60, verse 21, your people will all be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot that I planted. Jeremiah 24, I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. I will plant them, says God. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will. Fill the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans. Ezekiel 36. I'm concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown. So the most likely background is that the sower is God. And he is sowing his people in the land. Okay, you say. (laughs) That may be interesting. What's the point? What's the real world cash value on Monday morning? The point is this. God's spokesmen, the Old Testament prophets, warned of severe judgment. God was going to come and judge his people, and they would be sent into exile. And many of them would be lost. But these prophets also promised that there would come a time when God would restore his people in a glorious way. And that's why there's so much excitement about Jesus in these Gospels because people think that time might be coming. And when the prophets describe what God would do when he restored his people, they talk about God bringing people into the land and sowing them like good seed and that seed growing with wonderful results. It's a picture of a new community. A community of people who listen to God's word, they respond obediently and they're Lives are full of fruit. These people will see the promises of God fulfilled. They will be included in his restoration of a whole new world. So, as Jesus is teaching this parable, he's actually hinting that this is happening right now in his ministry. Jesus is God in the flesh, he is the one now sowing the word and teaching. And this word will bring about God's kingdom in this sick and weary world. Remember how Mark began. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near and it's near and it's coming with the words of Jesus. So a vital question for us all to answer today, friends, is how am I responding to the words of Jesus Christ? And the Lord Jesus really wants to wake us all up at this point, by the way, because there's something really uncomfortable in this passage. I've skipped over it so far. I'm now going to go back to it. I wonder if you noticed when Liz was reading. It's a deliberately harsh statement, and it is there to challenge us because Jesus uses a shock tactic. Remember the soil, the sower, the shock tactic. The shock tactic is in verses 10 to 12. I'll just read them again. When he was alone, the 12. And the others around him asked him about the parables, and he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What is he saying? You know, do you see how shocking what Jesus just said is? I'm going to tell them parables on the outside because they might, so that they will be ever hearing but never understanding and ever seeing but never getting it. And otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. What? I thought the whole point was Jesus was going to come and forgive us. You know, he said, chapter 3, all your sins can be forgiven in Jesus. And now he says, I don't want all those people to understand this in case they might get forgiven. What is going on? The the answer is that this is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Gareth opened the service with it today. One of the greatest passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah went to the temple, and he went to the temple to worship, and like most people who go to church, the last person he expected to meet at the temple was God. But God showed up, and he was absolutely terrified. The vision he has is so vast, so huge, that God's, the hem, just the hem of God's garment fills the temple. Just the hem. And he sees these angels, seraphim, flying around and everything is shaking. It always does when God shows up. Shaking and smoke and thunder, you know. and, And Isaiah's brought to his knees and he cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined! I'm undone! For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the lips show what's inside, and, and everything inside is unclean. I remember a great professor I studied under who said, he was 79 years old, he said, Sometimes I wonder if I've ever done anything in my life with a completely pure motive. I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And God dealt with Isaiah graciously and brought this coal, touched his lips, and the voice said, your sin is taken away. And then comes our text. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And this is what God says to him. Here's your job. go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, hard, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You see, if we just look back to Isaiah for clarification and things got a lot worse because isaiah 's job description is a job that you wouldn't accept it looks awfully like god is telling isaiah i've already made my mind up they're done you go and tell them in such a way that they can't understand isaiah's job seems to be to make sure people can't respond to warn them but slam the door in their face it's a brutal passage on first reading but again we remember that isaiah is a prophet and they speak in this powerful way jesus is acting as a prophet too in his ministry He quotes Isaiah, he identifies with Isaiah, and and you then have to ask, well, why would God speak like this to people? Isn't he supposed to be a God of love? Why would God send someone with a message, tell the people, don't understand? Here's the answer. It's a provocation. God is trying to provoke us to respond. It's ironic God is trying to use reverse psychology to make us think again because we get far too familiar with the things of God and we become complacent with them, especially if you've grown up in church. These words are not to be understood literally, but forcefully. It's saying, stop and listen because you're on the brink of destruction. Turn now. God is reaching out to people with an invitation and a warning. God is saying, judgment is coming and it is certain and your sins deserve it. You have spurned and trampled the tender love of God for your entire life. You've rejected his overtures of love. You've taken everything he gave you for granted. He has been patient and merciful towards you, full of grace, but God's patience will run out. In the end, he will judge and he must. Now, the idea of judgment is now, of course, completely unacceptable in this culture. The idea that God is a just judge. But let me just use a human illustration for a moment. Imagine that someone had done something awful to you or your family. Someone had committed a very harmful crime against you uh, and, and harmed you very deeply. We had a woman in the church in Manchester whose son, the adult son, woke up one night and heard his car being stolen. His, his car was his pride and joy. And he ran down, he was, a, he was a, a, a strong fit man, he ran down to confront the thieves and they ran him over and reversed and ran him over again in front of his young wife and crushed him to death in his car and then drove off in it. And, and this woman who was in our church went, to the, went through the trial of her son's murderers. Now imagine going through a costly legal battle and the case is brought to court and you are standing before the judge and so is the person who's done the crime. And the judge looks at the case and then he says, well, you know, this person's had a hard life. I believe he's basically a good guy at heart. I'm going to let him off. You would scream bloody murder of course you would. Where is the justice in that? Are we supposed to think that God is any different? That we can do what we like our whole lives and He will just let it go? Imagine a single mother. She's got one child an only son. She sacrificed everything to give this son the life that she never had. She worked several jobs. She worked her fingers to the bone, getting up early, cleaning, staying up late. She cared for him and cooked for him and got his clothes ready and she went without for him and she wept when he wept and she poured her life into him. She sent him to college. He qualified into a profession. He got a home and a mortgage and a car and a family. He achieved the dream but he never ever called. He never wrote. She never heard his voice. He never even said thank you. He lived on what she had provided and didn't give her a moment's love or affection. What would you think about such a son? Friends, we have behaved towards God like that our entire lives. And so is the rest of humanity. And God, in his mercy, still extends an amnesty to you and me. But judgment will come. And in Isaiah, the appeal is made with the shock tactic. And Jesus does the same. To make us wake up. People place themselves inside or outside of God's family. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. You place yourself outside God's kindness by the way you respond to the message. You are responsible for what you have heard. You are responsible for how willing you are to hear and obey. That is on you. So let me ask that question again. How are you responding to the word of Jesus Christ in your life right now? Some people here have been around church for years. Maybe you come every week. You know, you can do that and still actually not be obeying Jesus Christ in your life. Some have been seeking and you're hearing Jesus' voice and you know right now this is confronting and it's difficult because you know it's going to cost you. There's still time. Some people here have professed faith but are now so compromised in their spiritual life and moral life that they're risking becoming that soil that is ultimately unfruitful and bad. Some of you guys, young people, you're from a Christian family. All of this is just too familiar to you, you don't realize the danger that you're in. How are you responding to the word of Jesus? It is possible to be converted to church, but not converted to Christ. What place does his voice have in your life? But notice, in Mark's gospel, this passage about the sower is bracketed. On the one side, it's bracketed by the end of chapter 3, where the family come, Jesus' own mother and brothers, and they try and pull him out and say he's gone out of his mind. The family are not believing. That's the one bracket, and the other bracket is the disciples who are there saying, please tell us more. We want to learn, we want to hear, we want to obey. There's a bracket there, and the interesting thing is, the family, in the end, believed. Did you know that? Jesus' mother and brothers became key people in the early church. We have two letters in the New Testament by Jesus' brothers, James and Jude. Jesus' mum, Mary, became a key person in the early church. In the end, they did, they did listen. And then those 12 who were asking, one of them eventually betrayed him to death, sold him out, and then took his own life. Judas Iscariot. You see, the thing is, whatever kind of soil you are right now, it may not be your permanent condition. There is still time. There's time to change. So we learn that this warning is as much to us, the followers, as it is to the crowds outside. What kind of soil you are, not a permanent condition you can change and you can change today and then oh wow what a harvest can be produced in your life let's pray Lord we do not want to be like those who hear the word and it bounces off us like those who hear the word and respond superficially and then it dies Like those who hear the word and seem to grow but then get choked. We do not want to be that and we're scared of that. Help us, please. We want to give that crop, that fruit, that life of 30, 60, 100 fold. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing a couple of songs uh, reflecting some of that, turning it into praise. So do stand when the musicians start. Thank you.